Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray. And this week, we have a pleasure of speaking to somebody that is a true inspiration and a hero back in his hometown of New Zealand. His name is Alex Hunt. He was a kid who's, during his mother's pregnancy, the umbilical cord got wrapped around his left arm which prevented his hand from fully developing. But that didn't let his, his, his dream of becoming a tennis player stop him at all. He went on to play college tennis, has ATP points, and has won matches on the ATP tour down in Guam. He's a true inspiration to us all, and I hope you enjoy it. But first, let's talk about what's unfolding down there in Melbourne. You've got Novak Djokovic going toe-to-toe with the Australian government trying to fight for his ability to play this year's Australian Open. You've got the decision right now resting solely in the hands of the health minister. And let's think about the implications of that. We've got Novak, Rafa, Fed, all tied for 20. Novak gets this. He'll be in the lead. All the bonuses and all the money that comes with being the all-time Grand Slam holder, uh, record holder. But if Novak is unable to play and Rafa gets this one, you also have to assume Rafa is a lock for the French Open. And going into Wimbledon, where Roger's going to return, you've got Rafa. We could have Rafa with 22 Grand Slams and Novak with 20 and Fed with 20. And now Roger uh, brought into the mix in Wimbledon. So a lot of historical implications here on the line for men's tennis that lie almost solely with the health minister in Australia. It's a lot of pressure to make that decision. Now let's talk about the women's side. We saw Ash Barty win in Adelaide. Will this year, be an Ash Barty party. Will this be the first time in 44 years that an Australian woman can win the Australian Open? We've seen how when Aussies win this event, they are immortalized. They get, they get stadiums named after them. Ken Rosewall, Rod Laver, Margaret Court. Is this Ash Barty's year? Can she handle the pressure? We see in other sports where there's a home court advantage, but in tennis, a lot of times that pressure associated with playing at home could be the home court disadvantage. Is she ready for that? Let's see. Enjoy my conversation with Alex Hunt. We'll see you next week. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray. And today we have one of the most inspirational people in town, a person that was born with the disadvantage but through that physical disadvantage really got a mental uh over all the tennis players and you know is an inspiration to everyone who knows his story who knows him uh everyone in that part of the world uh we're here with the legend alex hunt welcome to the show bro yeah thanks for having me nice to meet you as well yeah so besides the u.s open australian open is like my favorite you know what I mean? Like that, that part of the region, there's so much American influence. 
besides the time difference, which is a bitch. I mean, that is like rough. It yeah. feels like home. You know what I mean? You turn on the TV in a hotel, NBA games are still going on, football yeah. games are still going on. Like you can kind of like live an American life if you're up at 3 a.m. You know, the venue is like in a residential neighborhood where you could almost walk from the hotel or walk from, uh, you know, some of the residential areas to it. And the way that you all promote your tennis players is a lot like how Americans promote their basketball players. And, you know, I miss it. Not in quarantine times, I don't miss it, but I miss it now. So tell me what it's like being from that region, right? Being from New Zealand. Tell me what the, the, the summer of tennis is like being from there. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool for us, I guess, as well, because we get to follow along on the TV and everything. Um, maybe we don't quite get the same atmosphere and the buzz, um, but we have our ASB tournament here when COVID isn't a thing. Um, and that was always cool going up there as a kid or having Melbourne not too far away from New Zealand. So, um, yeah, it's always a special time of the year and watching the summer unfold over there and kind of, I don't know, it's just, it's pretty cool. Now, I feel like so it's interesting you made the distinction between, you know, like Auckland New and uh, Melbourne, because I kind of view that, I still view that as you all slam, right? Yep. You still see people, everybody in the stands, some from New Zealand who came over for the week or for a couple of days, the flight is not that long. It's yep. interesting you made that distinction. You don't view that as like you all slam? Uh, no, we, I think <laughs> us Kiwis and Australians have quite a sporting sort of a conflicty sort of love-hate relationship um so we like to keep our distance in, in most sporting <laughs> aspects but uh yeah it's I guess it is kind of and it's so easy for us to get there we've we've got a as I said our own little tournament here um before COVID I don't know hopefully we can keep it um yeah. and that's our little bit of summer paradise you know going up there in the heat of summer a beautiful weather normally up in Auckland and I guess that's our little piece and then they carry on and go to the big boys league in, in Australia. <laughs> well, let me ask you then. So where did you, um, you obviously were born with um, one arm shorter than the other, right? Yep. There it is, right? And <laughs> managed to actually have a very successful tennis career, playing, a, playing on the ATP tour, winning matches on the ATP tour. Where did you get your inspiration from? Was it a person? Is it like this part of the year where tennis is so big? Was it apparent? Yeah. Where did it come from? I think it's just, it probably started with, I was very lucky to be born into a family where they just accepted and loved me for who I was. And they, they didn't see my arm or my, my missing piece of an arm as a disability. Um, they, as I said, growing up on a farm, I had two older brothers um, who both played tennis. Mum and dad played tennis, grandma and grandpa across the road on the farm had a little tennis court and they played tennis. So I just got born into like a real positive, happy, um, didn't look at me any differently sort of a family, you know? And I think also running around a farm, jumping on motorbikes and trying to drive a motorbike, driving me and my brother into a, a concrete wall fence and doing <laughs> us and, you know, just growing up and having no fear sort of thing um, was awesome for me. And I'm so lucky and, privileged to have that um and my family so I think that's probably what I got as I said lucky as a young person to, to grow up around that and then it just carried on 
through into my tennis tennis career. I played soccer, cricket, everything. Um, but tennis was probably the thing that I really, really loved. And when I do little little speaking things, I normally tell the kids the reason I chose tennis over soccer, those were the two sports I really got into and played deep into my kind of teenage years. The reason I chose tennis instead of soccer was I, I literally couldn't wake up the next morning and think that I wasn't going to step on a tennis court in the next day or two. Um, but I could see myself waking up and not playing soccer every day. So that was kind of the way I chose what I really wanted to do. I just couldn't see my life without it. So did your parents teach you early on or what was the first experience like when you stepped onto a tennis court with a coach that wasn't your parent? Was it like full of, was the conversation full of limitation? Was it full of hope and possibility? You know, cause as a coach, you know, we always look at kids. I look at kids and say, okay, they're short or they're tall or um, yeah. don't have great change of direction, great balance, right? You look at all these things that might limit them and you try to figure out a good coach figures out a way to make up for them. And a bad yeah. coach is like, oh, okay. You'll probably play D3 tennis. So yeah. what, tell me about your entry into it. Yeah, it's, it's real interesting. Eh? Cause obviously my parents had viewed me as just a normal kid. I always wore a prosthetic arm. Um, I got it here to show, show you guys. I've always grown up wearing these. I had some really tiny ones as a kid, obviously like little pinches. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I guess every, everyone I went to kind of saw me as, as normal because I had another arm, a prosthetic arm, and I just almost fit in. But my coaches, I got so lucky again, like I did with my family, never really thought it was a, something that would hold me back. My coach now has been with me since I was probably 14 uh, or, or even younger than that. And we kind of talk about it sometimes and he almost feels like he forgot that I had one arm, you know? Um, and I'm lucky to have him still with me, mentoring me and just kind of being there for me in life, not just tennis, but um, yeah, it's been real interesting. And I look back on those years as, and I keep saying the same thing, but how lucky I was to be born into this family, meet these coaches, these people, um, who could keep me positive and um, help me do what I love. So you obviously got a one hand backhand. I've seen it and it's pretty wicked actually. Uh, yeah. Now, when you chose a coach and when your parents were looking for coaches, were you looking for people who also hit the one handed uh, or sort of specialized um, in that? Probably not as a young person, I wasn't. Um, and I think, yeah, no, nah, I don't think so. I, I was just so, <laughs> pumped to be on a tennis court. I was a young little fella. Um, there's, there's some video of me being a cheeky little bugger and kind of winning points in a tournament and just kind of having this evil laugh. This is when I was really young. Um, and I think that just shows that when I, was, when I was that age, I was just out there, not maybe not so much to win. I loved the winning when I was young, but I just love being on a tennis court, hitting balls. And I don't know, I guess it could be quite a safe place where I'm fitting in with other kids when I was young and sport is a great thing for that, I think. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. So... As a as American male, 
right? I grew up and people say, okay, well, who did you look up to? You know, who inspired you to play tennis, right? Aside from your family, right? Yeah. And I would say that American males, especially black males, have a hard time identifying like the one black male or the one person, period. You know what I mean? I say Agassi was probably like the hippest, coolest dude yeah. on tour when I was coming up. So mm -hmm. besides your family, who was the Aussie? And like I said, the Aussies, you all have more depth on the men's side than we do on the men's side, right? And yeah. so you got Leighton. I mean, you have all kinds of people you could choose from who have like this swag and this charisma. You know, yeah. who inspired, who did you look up to, if anybody, you know, when you were- I, I really loved the two people you just mentioned. I really loved Leighton Hewitt's um, aggression and like his, his attitude towards the sport. Yeah, I, I used to watch all of his matches when, when I was young and just sitting right in front of the TV, not even on a chair, just on the carpet right in front of the TV, watching watching the Aussie Open and US Open, whatever it was. But I think someone that I really enjoyed, um, my favourite player when I was young was Agassi, um, partly because my family grew up calling me Aggie as my nickname, because um, mm. my, my middle brother couldn't say Alex properly when I was young, so... They were calling me Aggie um, and it kind of just went with Agassi, but I had all his clothes and his pajama shorts and stuff like that. I just loved watching him play and I don't know, his skill, his fight, his determination um, and just the way he could return the ball, I guess he was a beast, man. Um, so, yeah. So you talk about how when you were a kid, you had a prosthetic limb. Yeah. Now when you play, Right. And a full grown adult and probably can maneuver it probably better than you did as a kid. You don't yep. play with one. Why is that? How do you make the decision to not use one? Particularly you think about tossing the ball or yep. maybe stabilizing the one hand backhand. It seemed like it would be something you think about now. Yeah, it, it was it was really weird. As I said, we grew up, me and my coaches um, using my prosthetic and it was always just this awesome thing that helped me do everything. I could tie shoelaces. I could. I could do anything, drive a car. Um, and we never actually thought, obviously I didn't because it was such a great thing and helped me do everything. We never thought that maybe without the arm, I'd have more freedom or, you know what I mean? Um, so I was playing Futures tournaments over in Thailand, um, me and my friend over there, and I fell over on the court one day and I just couldn't wear my prosthetic the next day because there was a big lump on here. So we were like, screw it. I'm going to keep training. I just won't be able to serve, obviously. And so I went out and started hitting and I was like, holy shit, like unbelievable the difference of having sort of that freedom to just release the, the arm and open up properly. Yeah. Whereas when I had the arm on, I didn't feel, because it wasn't part of me, it was just this extra thing. Right. I didn't feel like I could get past probably there Yeah. because it would just almost feel like it was going to pop off. Right. Um, so I went out there and started hitting and I was like, shit, man, this is unbelievable. But what am I going to do? Like, I can't play without my arm because I won't be able to serve. So the next tournament, I trained like that for a couple of weeks. And when I was serving, I'd take my, chuck my arm on. And when I was returning, I'd throw my arm to the back of the court. So I'd, I'd say a lot of players hadn't seen someone throw their arm to the back of the court during a match. <laughs> um, so I went, to, I went to Taipei and I actually did that for two tournaments there. And I played really well. But obviously, as you can imagine, um serving a service game with it 
I didn't feel great on the ground strokes and it was just really odd. And then I was changing for the return games and I felt amazing. So it wasn't, obviously it wasn't ideal changing game after game. Right. Um, but it was awesome. I played well and I was really nervous because probably for the first time I felt a little bit naked on the tennis court without this playing a match. It was fine in training, but when I turned up and there was people watching and kind of the nerves and the stress of playing a match, I felt quite nervous to be out there. Um, and luckily my friend was awesome and he sat there and gave me someone to kind of look at after points and, you know, take yeah. my, take my mind off what I was probably worrying about. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that was all good. That's kind of how I had committed to playing from then on. And then I got back to New Zealand and probably a week before nationals here, our national kind of tournament, I, again, was this time I was training without my arm on, just hitting, and I charged up for a drop shot and I flipped over, landed right on my stump. <laughs> and again, it puffed up, so I couldn't serve with it. Um, and my straight away, my thought was I won't be able to play nationals. And then a, a day or so later, I was out on court training and we got done with all the training stuff and my, my, my friends were like, okay, we're going to play points. And I was like, sweet, I'll jump on the umpire chair and give you guys some shit where you play and, you know, just have a bit of fun. And they're like, nah, bro, come on, just like put the ball in your stump and see if you can throw it up and hit a serve. Right. And I was like, oh, are you sure? And I don't want to ruin their training, you know? And, and uh, they're like, yeah, do it. And sure enough, I went out there, put the ball in that little kind of gap between the elbow and the stump and popped it up. And it wasn't pretty for the first wee while, but um, I was getting every serve in just kind of gently slicing them in and stuff. And it kind of just got us thinking that maybe I don't need my prosthetic arm. Um, and then probably for the next five days before the tournament, I went out twice a day with a box of balls and worked on the serve every day, every day. And the, the guy I was staying with is classic Kiwi guy. Um, and he got a, he got a um, wristband and he cut a hole in it. So the ball had somewhere to kind of grip. Because oh. um, that was the one thing I struggled with was a brand new Wilson tennis ball is a little bit slippery on the skin. Yeah. Um, so it was just not quite sitting in that kind of that gap properly. So yeah, I played that tournament a wee while later and probably served as good or better than I ever have, um, especially in doubles. I think I struggled in the singles a little bit because it was such a new thing for me and people were watching and I kind of, I think I let that get the better of me, but I just needed that first tournament to get it out of the way. And, and now it's just feels so natural and finally, feels like on the service I can feel the ball going off my hand instead of off the plastic you're not with the ball you know what I mean mm-hmm. um, so it's been it's been crazy it was all weird how it happened but I guess it was supposed to be well you know as a coach I'm, I'm thinking about it and one of the things that I find on a toss is I find people's fingers cover the ball yeah. and send the ball back behind them almost like gripping it yeah, gripping the ball, right? So the fingers send the ball back that way and you end up tossing the ball behind them. Yeah. Um, and I also find that they sort of bend their elbow prematurely, right? And it makes it even harder to toss. And I'm looking at, you know, your arm and I'm like, that could actually probably give a nice projected yeah. ball with no spin. Because you also see people who toss a ball and it's spinning, right? Yeah. As it's in the air. Right. And you never want to like kind of like toss yourself a curveball or a ball that's spinning. You want the ball to like, you know, just naturally flow up there and sort of like hang in the air with no spin. And I, I would imagine that the ball doesn't come off your arm and spin at all. 
Hmm. If that yeah, it, it's interesting. We uh, my but you coach never serve with the with the hand, so you wouldn't know the difference. But as a like with like a hand and a palm, yep. you know, if you're not really like focused on the release, the ball will spin when it leaves your hand. Yeah, it'll kind of roll off your fingers, eh? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, me, me and my coach are still good friends. And as I say, I've been coaching for the last year or so and really enjoying it. Um, and we kind of joke a little bit between us. He mentors me a little bit. And we kind of joke and say, if, if we can't get someone to serve right, we just threaten to cut their arm off so, they, so they'll have a, <laughs> a serve like me, you know. <laughs> That's probably a bad thing to say to a 10-year-old, but I know. <laughs> oh, man. But, you know, so you touched on something earlier about how you know you're playing a tennis match and most people are really insecure about them looking at them right so you yeah. see a lot of kids who don't want their parents to come in and watch them play don't yeah. invite our relatives right or even you know even at the pros right and they sort of have that one person to coach or somebody on their team that they sort of lock in on to yeah. ignore the 19,000 other people that are watching right uh and unfortunately there's no place for anyone to hide on the tennis court Right. When you're down 6050, you wish you can crawl up under that bench, right? And hide and you can't. So tell me about how you develop like the strength. Because when people come on the side of the court, yes, they're coming to watch a tennis match, but they're also watching you to see how you do what you do. Yep. Right. Uh tell me about how you overcame that insecurity. Yeah, I think it's interesting. It's still something that obviously I haven't perfected. Other, I'd probably have a better ranking and be better than I am. But um, uh, it's it's probably something that I grew up with. People looking at me and and wondering what he what's wrong with his arm, mum, or, or what why has he got that, mum? Which was actually really good for me, and I love it uh, nowadays and and all through my life. I love it when someone comes up and and asks me about it. Um, because I don't want them to feel like what happened there. I'd, I'd like to help the little kid understand, or I know some people might not be like that. And it's maybe looked upon as rude, but I'm someone who wants to welcome that, you know? Mm. Um, and as a kid, before every school year, me and my, me and my mom or me and my dad would go into the class and I'd stand up front with my arm and show them all how it worked. And we'd just kind of explain to them why I am like I am. And I think from a young age for me and for the kids that were all at my school, um, it helped me feel like everyone knew what was what had happened to me um, or why I was like I was. Um, and it just set things on a, on a good start at school, you know. Mm. Um, and for me to get out there as a young kid like that, my parents to help me do that, I think that helped me through my sporting career. It wasn't, my arm wasn't something I worried about. Um, I still think when I'm on the court, maybe I worry about outside noise too much, um, but it's something I, I can use as well um, to fire me up. And I love playing in front of a little bit of a crowd. And especially, you know, if you get into the match and you feel like you're part of it, it's probably obviously different when you're down six love, five love, because you don't feel like you're in the match. But when you get into it and you're in the third set and you're sweating and you're playing the match and you're in the zone, it's just, it's awesome and you, you're not worried about anything on the outside you're just there to play and win and and do what you love so I don't know I, I think as a young kid the arm helped me with that in some way but um yeah it's all it's all interesting for a tennis player no I mean because you know I, I'll be honest with you so when I, I use the word like insecure you know not to say that you are insecure but like as a kid when I grew up 
you know, yeah. all the tennis tournaments were in white tennis clubs, right? Yeah. And I was always the only black kid showing up at the tennis tournament, right? And my parents never came in to watch. So my dad would pull up to the tennis club. He's sitting in the car. He was a, he's a lawyer. He's sitting yeah. in the car and like go through his documents and file. I, I remember that, that yellow legal paper, like a legal pad. He's sitting yeah. there and do his work. And I'd go in, check in myself, play the match myself. And I'd always feel really insecure a being in there, being the only black dude in there, right? Everyone's yeah. sort of looking at you like you got some sort of disadvantage, right? You know what I'm saying? And it's like that. So I think that that experience early on, like you just touched on, like created like this level of like, you know, almost armor, right? And yeah. so you're used to people kind of looking at it. So now you walk into a room, you think about all those times from seven to 17 where you were uncomfortable and you mm. walk into the room like really confident. Uh, yep. and, and Bill just said, do you, do you, is that something you preach to the kids? Because that's the number one lesson when I'm on the court with a kid is I look at, you know, yeah, you're going to be a great tennis player, be a great athlete, be in shape, hopefully get a college scholarship. But as a person, if yep. you can survive on this tennis court by yourself, with everybody looking at you, then you're just going to be a much better person later on. Is that a message that you deliver? Yeah, that's awesome. I, I try to I try to de deliver things like that. I'm probably not as good as you <laughs> at those sort of things, but um, I think it is pretty cool. I've learned so much in this year coaching. I think I've grown up a lot. I'm, I'm already 28, but um, I think I've really kind of learned how you can push these kids to the next level. And, and that the fact that I have one arm and I'm out there coaching and kind of sharing little stories like you've just done with me can help them grow so much and feel the confidence that they can do it on their own and they don't need their mum or their dad to look at or to, if they miss a couple of shots, it's not their mum's fault or their racket's fault. You know, it's, it's just time to dig down and go for the next point and be positive. But yeah, it's awesome. I've been going to a sports psychologist this year just to try and learn and, and up myself. And it's all things that I can pass on to the kids I coach. Um, and some of the stuff I've taken from there and handed to the kids has number one taught me more probably um and and like you say it just it can create an arm around the kids for when they go and play at tournaments and they're worried about what this kid thinks of them their forehand or their backhand or this you know mm. um i think in new zealand there's a bit of a bit of this like gotta try and look cool on the court and and i think honestly when i went to germany to play club tennis that's where i learned that being cool on the court is not is not a thing you know like some of the techniques and things i saw over there was just so inspiring for me um because i was watching these players that i thought no disrespect to anyone because my technique's not good <laughs> not good <laughs> but like i was seeing people go out with like a, a technique that i thought was like a club player and they were demolishing players that i thought were like awesome looking technique and stuff and and that's where i finally learned like it's not about how you've you know technique's important but it's about this thing inside you that you want to dig in and win and find a way you know yeah people don't know club tennis in germany and france is big you know what i mean yeah. like i think we've tried you know world team tennis in america but like club tennis over there mm. it's like i mean you got you know tatiana maria playing you have like mm. actual pros playing on these club teams and you know it's a trip so you're obviously wearing a wilson shirt right and I yeah. feel like over the years, um, people with one hand backhands have gotten a bigger disadvantage, right? Because now we're playing with extra duty balls. 
yeah. right? And they're heavier, right? And the and the the courts are getting bouncier, right? There's more acrylic on the court. Do you feel like as you now that you're on tour, right? And you're trying to make it, the game is sort of getting away from you because now you got the one hand, right? And now the balls are like bouncing higher, heavier, right? People are stringed, everybody hitting the ball bigger. It's like, come on now, slow down. Let me get in the yeah. game first. <laughs> no, actually, to be honest, uh, I'm just so happy that I've grown up and gotten stronger because as a young fella, I was battling man like these guys are all hitting two-handers and like feeling so strong and i'm out here as a little kid with like little plank arms right. trying to hit well arm honestly just one but i was trying to hit these balls and couldn't do it so i ended up slicing a lot and just running around and crushing forehands as a young fella mm -hmm. um but i'm just so so happy that i feel strong enough to hit over it and and that my backhand's probably one of the things that have improved the most in the last five years because even out of college I went to play college tennis even out of college I didn't feel like I'd fully matured and I was able to stand and rip with these guys you know mm -hmm. um, I think I was quite late in that aspect to to finally grow into my body and feel strong enough to stay out there and hit and and be a part of a match with these guys but yeah I fully agree like the balls are some of the courts are kicking up over your head and um, the rackets, the people, everyone's training harder and harder as they see the limits that their body can go. Like, I mean, probably in 20 years, there'll be probably three or four Djokovic's, you know? <laughs> everyone's, well, you know sort of, everyone's sort of seeing the limits and the new yes. limits and new, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's cool, but it's, it's crazy. But you, you mentioned the style, right? So you like, you know, chipping backhands, looking for forehands. I mean, yeah. there's dudes with two arms that play that way, right? You look at like Jack Sock, right? He's like chipping and looking for forehand. Chris yeah. Eubanks, they just chip and looking for forehand. There's guys that actually make a living on tour playing that way. Yeah. So you're really not that disadvantaged if you're clear. And I think that's why what your story is so inspiring because when I first read about you years ago, I was like, oh, piece of cake. If he can get the toss right, he can just yeah. chip and look beforehand, right? And it's yeah. like, as a coach, when you see a kid at eight, nine, 10 years old, you look at him and say, okay, how can we maximize their opportunity in this game? Yeah. Right? And not focus on what they can't do, right? And so two years ago, I was like, oh yeah, chip and look beforehand. If he can move, yeah. right? Yeah. If he can backpedal, right? If he yeah. can get around the ball and play the left side of the court, he's good. Yeah. So yeah. you obviously had a college coach that saw that and believed in your opportunity, believed in your talent, right? And your ability. So tell us about like that moment, because it's one thing to believe in yourself. It's one thing for your parents to believe you, but to get a college coach who gets paid to win, right? Yeah. Uh, to believe in you, that had to be a, you know, like a, an inspiring moment. So tell us a little bit about that whole experience and about that person. Yeah, it was, uh, I was talking about this just the other day, because I look back sometimes and wonder if the coach was crazy or, you know, what happened to him to kind of take that chance on me. Um, and I got, I got quite lucky. I had a, a coach here, Lan Bale, who knew of some coaches over in America and he kind of got me talking to a few. Um, and there was one, one spot that I really liked, St. Mary's College it's in California. Um, decent basketball team. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah, it all kind of happened, but 
had a few video calls with the coach and he obviously saw a bit of video from me and probably had spoken to a coach over here. But just the fact that he had the confidence in me or wanted to take the chance on me to, to kind of let me play out or have a crack at my dream and go over there and do what I love um, is something that for the rest of my life I'll be grateful for. And it's just in the moment because I was kind of looking at myself as a normal person, you know, um, I, I didn't quite respect how big it was from him to take, take on a, a kid with a disability. Um, but looking back, it's just, I can't believe it. And, and uh, I never actually spoke to him about it. Um, the fact that he took on that, but he did tell me a little story when I got there, he had kind of spoken to a few of the, the teammates that they had on the team at that stage and said to them, what do they think? And from watching me play, they were all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, am I just doing this to be a good person or is this, this kid's good, isn't he? Um, and, and so it was cool to hear that they, they got me on board because of the way I could play as well. Um, they probably were like, yeah, he reminds me of Steve Johnson, California boys, right? You're in California, like, oh yeah, that's just a an, an, uh, New Zealander, you know, Steve Johnson, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and the other, the other little thing is that the guys we were talking about chipping back cans, one of my favorite players as a young fellow was um, Gonzalez. Like, oh, unbelievable, man. Nasty. Just All he did was just crush four hands. <laughs> <laughs> So that was another guy that I really looked up to as a young fellow because I knew I had a forehand um, at that stage and not much else. And that's kind of how I wanted to play. <laughs> when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So before I let you go, I got to ask you, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of talk right now about Novak and the whole, um, you know, visa situation you know last year i went to australia didn't plan on having a quarantine for two weeks landed yep. in australia and boom escorted to the government run hotel yep. um for uh, you that region has done so well with COVID. yeah right you know like barely any cases strict government quarantines uh lots of vaccinations how do you all feel about sort of the players and it's not just Novak right but players coming in being exempt for the rules yeah I, I I honestly I'm not sure what to think of it I think at first I was a little bit unsure um and then as kind of I would say bad things started to happen to him and rough things and it sounds like it's happened to a lot of players I started to feel bad for the situation and like he was being dealt with in a bad way but um it's Honestly, I can't really have a say on it because it's the Australian kind of government have have put up with a lot of COVID um, and they've had some massive lockdowns as we have it, have had in New Zealand. Um, so it's a tough thing to, to comment on. But um, yeah, some players have been put in some tough positions and maybe they could have had some better talkings with, with Australia and the border and the, the tournament managers and things but 
yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. It's it's tough for everyone involved, I think. Um, and I think it's just, I don't know. It, it definitely will have a big impact on history, right? Because I, I, I try to like forward think. So let's yeah. just play this scenario. Novak doesn't play. And Rafa, you know, becomes a favorite. Yeah. He wins this one, gets 21, breaks the record first. Rafa almost is a lock to win the French Open. That puts him at 22 to 20. Yeah. Right? Fed comes back at Wimbledon, right? And that puts really the, the, the last slam of the year, maybe that, you know, Novak has the advantage there at the U.S. Open. So I yeah. feel like that decision, right, mm. or this sort of moment is shaping tennis yeah. history on the men's side. Because yeah. if it, Novak doesn't play, you almost have Rafa with 22 to 20. Yeah. You know, and no one would bet against Rafa at the French Open, right? So you give him the next two. And now yeah. he's got a good little – it'll be a year before anybody else catches him. Yeah. You know what <laughs> I mean? So in my mind, I was calculating. I was like, ooh, this is like lots of bonuses on the line. This is lots yeah. of history, lots of dollars, right, on the line uh, when you think about these types of situations and you wonder if – the conversations behind closed doors are like, hey, guys, you guys you really, you understand you probably playing with $100 million in yeah. bonus and records and this and that, you know what I mean? It's crazy, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but are these other guys like Medvedev and Zverev and stuff going to give Rafa some big problems on the hard court, or, or do you reckon Rafa's got it under the belt if Djokovic doesn't play? You know what? I think at this slam with the, the, the rebound ace courts, right, mm. that they play with in Melbourne, I think Rafa's ball is going to kick up to yeah. a level similar to, to it does at the French Open. Yeah. And aside from Djokovic, I think there's no one that could beat him just on this surface. I think, yeah, yeah. you know, Medvedev and Zara for sure could beat him. I don't yeah. know if they could beat him with the, the the high bounce on this surface hmm. right so you know who who knows what happens right and then even with Djokovic sort of maybe getting a late start to his preparation um hmm. you know you, you know you still he's got an excuse in his back pocket to use if he doesn't win it right <laughs> but I mean having not won nine of them if he plays you know you gotta sort of uh, assume that he'll, you know, sort of make it to the finish line. And every player in the locker room knows that. Like, man, this dude's won nine of these, right? Yeah. Um, so I just sort of was, like, up at night thinking, like, wow, you know, if this doesn't go Novak's way, this this could be 22 to 20 Rafa by the end of June. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? And how yeah. six months this, – this decision impacts tennis for the next, you know, year, per se. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, it's going to be interesting. Yep. And then Rog. Rog got to come back and win Wimby. Has to. I mean, look, you know, the story could be Novak gets this one, Rafa gets the French, and then, and then uh, Fed gets Wimbledon, and they back tied at 21. And then the U.S. Open becomes like some big, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so we, we, just, we just wrote like three articles for the tennis writers right now. Look at us go. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, man, I wanted to thank you for spending the time with me today. Um, like I said, when I you know read about your story two years ago, um, you know I was inspired by it. I immediately thought of like Stevie Johnson, 
you know what I mean? All kind of guys who have made a good living on tour, had a lot of success that, you know, like, oh yeah, he could just play this way. Right. And so to hide it. So, um, you know, I appreciate you spending time with us, you know, good luck in your career. I know you just getting started. I know COVID kind of put a monkey wrench in your, uh, in sort of your momentum, but you know, keep going brother. That's all I got to say. Legend man. Appreciate it. And it's been fun uh, getting to know you and having a chat, hopefully keep in touch and yeah. yeah, champion. Thanks for the chat. All right. Well, this has been a tennis.com podcast. I'm your host, Kamal Murray, and we just had the pleasure of chopping it up with Alex Hunt. We'll see you next time.